I'm known for helping to change the way the world communicates. Before we assume it should be regulated or not regulated, let's see how it blooms. If you look at blockchain and Bitcoin, just so happens it came into a marketplace heavily regulated. For nine years, we kept voice over IP unregulated. You are listening to Bitcoin, blockchain, and the technologies of our future with Naomi Brockwell. I'm here in New Zealand at Blockchain South with the amazing Jeff Pulver. We just uh, watched him give a presentation at the conference, which was spectacular, and I'm about to play that presentation for you, just as an introduction. So, Jeff, you are well known uh, for your work in uh, allowing the correct regulation and deregulation of VoIP technologies. I'm known for helping to change the way the world communicates, and when innovation meets disruption, I try to make sure that I try to protect the future by not allowing people to encourage fear, uncertainty, and doubt in a technology revolution or evolution, to give the benefit of the doubt that the nuance of what we're looking at is something brand new. It may not fit into any category of what we're used to. So before we assume it should be regulated or not regulated, let's see how it blooms. And so what I'm very much trying to do in the blockchain space, as much as I've done in the history of internet communications, is to create a safe harbor and create a place where things can grow and be nascent and not be forced to grow up overnight and have a chance to figure out what they what they're going to become. That's absolutely the most wonderful thing that that you could hear because there's so much talk about clamping down on this thing when we are really it's really at its nascent stages and um, that ability to provide a safe harbor so something can bloom is just so important. And now you know when people use things like WhatsApp and and FaceTime and all of these things and they're using it for free it's you that did that. I, I help create the situation that supports it and I very much help change the habits of people because 14 years ago it wasn't so common for people to pick up their phones, their, their, their apps their, and basically engage in one-to-one or one-to-many conversations locally or with people around the world and today it's culturally the way things happen. We take it for granted. I mean there was a, there was a time I remember in the 1960s where someone would call somebody else and literally people would stop having sex if they're getting this call, oh my God, somebody from New Zealand is calling us, stop everything. Now people are just checking their phone during, I'm sure. But they, because it doesn't matter, because they take it for granted, right? So, so something that's dramatic is getting everyone's attention. I mean, I remember growing up where I would wait patiently by my phone for someone to call me. Right. And it's like, because it mattered. And this is only Atlanta to New York. I mean, and, and overseas, it was just a dramatic moment. So, so being appreciative of this, so I... I do take credit for helping to facilitate the change. And it's really the change of culture that I help, because it's taken for granted so much right now. It's like people don't realize they're living in a world that's just different than the way it was a decade ago. Right. And, and, it's, and it's not going back. And so in this ever-connected world where we're living and doing things we never could imagine before, but now it just seems so natural, the same thing's going to happen with what we, consider, what we call blockchain today, I mean, I, I do believe, technically speaking, blockchain and Bitcoin are the two most overhyped, misunderstood technologies in the history of mankind, but offer us the biggest potential at the same time, and they're not a conflict. One is just saying that we're, that we're not understood, that people just parrot what they hear, and they don't fully understand the impact of what it can do. And when I'm telling you the economic introduction of blockchain technologies in our lives will be worth, worth so much more than the, the introduction of the internet to business. Dramatically so. And so we're at the very early stages. If the internet's been around technically since the late 60s, one commercial in 94 to 95, we're living, in my opinion, pre-1991. We're at the edge 
of, of this disruption. But you know what? The people who give them all the pioneers a lot of credit, but frankly, it's so hard for people to get involved. Like in voice over IP, we used to have this, we used to call it the mother-in-law test, the mother test, the grandma test. Can someone pick up an, an, an internet-based phone and make a call? And the answer usually was no, until it was, of course, yes. And today, if you ask someone to, t to get a, um, a non-Coinbase um, crypto, to, to buy it for a relative, if I, asked, if I were to ask, if my grandmother was alive, I don't think she would be able to do it. My mom would ask my sister. <laughs> so so, so we're, we, we have a lot of friction just in the ecosystem. And the other thing is greed. Oh my goodness. For all the companies that are providing on-ramps and off-ramps, they're greedy people. And they're charging so much for something which I think if they simply were to reduce the friction, they'd have a lot more user adoption. They'd have a lot more ways to actually bring the masses into it. But they like having these roadblocks. They like having tolls. I like to be on highways with no tolls. <laughs> well, you were instrumental in really providing that safe harbor for VoIP technologies to be developed. Now you're being instrumental in also helping blockchain in the same way. And I'm very appreciative of all the work you're doing. And uh, here's the presentation that Jeff gave earlier today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Could be talking about the present as much as a little bit of the future, but also starting with the past. Because, um, you know, when you look at history, if we don't learn from history, it has a tendency of repeating itself. And, and sometimes when you study history, you could, or if you're doing any type of numerical analysis, if you're doing any type of uh, trading, sometimes you're looking for patterns. And sometimes when it becomes predictive of those patterns, you could kind of see the future based on if everything else stayed constant. So I'm going to share a little bit about my history. Oh, if you can see that, that's the galactic center of the Milky Way. I photographed that last night. This actually is the center of the, that's the center of our universe. It's about 23,000 million miles away. Uh, but that uh, represents a billion stars. Every star averages to have five exoplanets. So you're kind of staring at five billion planets, which is a, another part of the conversation. We'll get to the very end. But for, for me, I, I've been involved in technology since I was young. And... I've always been challenging it, being challenged by it. And uh, when I look at where, what I have done, and so those of you who don't know what I've done, in some ways, I, I've helped change the way the world communicates so far. And uh, I, I did not invent anything. I did things with technology. But um, if you think about the world you're living in today, because when I was growing up, if, if you're in New York and you're going to get a phone call from someone overseas or even from California, people actually set aside time for the call to happen. I can tell you, based on my own history, I happen to know that people would stop doing whatever activity it was to receive a call, because it mattered. A phone call overseas was really costly. And we're now we're living in a world where people take for granted the ability to FaceTime from Auckland and, and Queenstown back to New York, back to California, back to a Sydney. It's like no big deal that you can engage in conversations or one-to-one, one-to-many conversations, one tablets, phones, laptops, and we don't even think twice about it. You know, in 1964, the, chair, the CEO chairman of AT&T was at the World's Fair in New York. And he spoke about a vision of video communication. But nothing that AT&T could do for many, many, many years would ever bring that vision to fruition. It took many generations of change, plus technology innovation. And finally, that moment in time happened, and then we just take that all for granted. Now, in the... Um, 1970s, that's the world that I grew up in. As much as I like to think it was a different, pick a different decade, that was the world I grew up in. And I, um, as a young kid, I had a challenge 
that I, I don't know if any of you in your life you've ever felt lonely, if you've ever been in school and didn't have too many friends, or perhaps you could see through people at a young age and didn't want to take their bullshit, whatever the case. Um, in the 70s, I went to, I was in elementary school, and I guess my parents felt bad for me. But what I'm about to explain to you is the re reason how I ended up here today, and it sort of is a part of the long story about change and innovation. But for me personally, I was um, about nine years old. I was trying to figure out whether it was nine, nine and a half, but about nine years old. So in America, that's like third grade, fourth grade. And um, my father was hounding me forever to call his brother, my Uncle Fred, to see him. And I don't know about you as a young kid, but me as a young kid, I would never listen to my parents. So I never called him. And I, uh, but I was really having a hard time in school because I really did not have very many friends. And the people who were my friends disappointed me and said I'd rather be by myself than be with these people. This is like in third grade, so it's kind of weird, but, but I was very much aware of the world I was in. So one day I show up at home from school and there's my Uncle Fred waiting to take me to his factory. Because in the 1960s, my uncle was a pioneer in uh, cable TV. He actually went, took a company public building te a, a cable television test equipment. And he took me out to his factory, which was about an hour from my home, and took me for this factory tour, and it's like, okay, I'm a young kid, it's my uncle's company, of course everyone's nice to him, very unimpressed. But about, toward the end of the tour, he brought me into his office, which was maybe the size of the stage, maybe. All I remember was being a room with a, with a desk and a box on that desk. I didn't notice the microphone until after we sat down, but he flipped a switch, and this box started to glow. This box had radio tubes in it, which I would learn later. And when he turned this box on, he heard voices, I just heard noise. And he would turn the, the dial on this radio to a certain spot where it was clear. And I was kind of mesmerized at that point. I was just like, like, what is this going on? And my uncle spoke a language which I learned later, which I'll translate for you in a moment, but he found a clear spot. And he said, CQ, CQ, this is K2QQ, I'm calling CQ. And repeated this and said again, CQ, CQ, this is K2QQ, I'm calling CQ. And he repeated this for a minute, and he let go of the microphone. And for an hour, there were people from all over the world queuing up trying to talk to my uncle. So in, um, in ham radio lingo, CQ means CQ. And in Morse code, it's da 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 which, by the way, happens to be the baseline for many disco songs from the 70s. As I learned much later on, a lot of musicians were also into radio down then, and it was very much part of the culture, but da-da-da-da, just think about that. I mean, go back and listen to your music archives. But, um, so I'm there listening to my uncle call, call out, basically, seek you. And um, what I did not expect was that for everyone who was queuing up, no matter where in the world they were from, he would say his name was Fred, he was in Farmingdale, New York, and he gave a signal report about how loud or weak the person was in terms of strength. And these conversations were kind of brief, but they were from all over the place. And I was there for an hour, and what I realized is that my uncle had the cure for loneliness. See, all I needed to do was take this box off his desk and put it in my bedroom. And then I could have friends before I went to school, and I could talk to people after school. And that would be, I'd be okay with that. But the, the gotcha was I couldn't uh, just take that box home. My uncle would not let me. Because uh, in America, and many places in the world, you had to be licensed. You see, in order to be a, a ham radio operator, you actually had to take a series of tests. So I was nine years old, and I basically had to teach myself college-level physics, Morse code, 
And then my first entry in the regulatory policy world, I had a rule read the FC, Federal Communications Commission's Part 97.1 and actually learn the regulations of being an amateur radio operator. So I grew growing up in that, when I was nine years old, ten, I, I learned a lot about failure. And failure was not learning from failure. That's what I learned. I learned that if I didn't learn why it didn't succeed in doing something, that was the failure. But trying and failing was fine. So in, in my family, my father encouraged me to teach myself whatever I need to teach myself. And it took years. It, I didn't get my ham radio license until I was 12 and a half. But the moment I got my license to communicate, first of all, I haven't shut up since. <laughs> and secondly, it actually changed my life. Because I actually had this radio in my bedroom, and I actually did speak to people all over the world before I went to school and after. And I was averaging about 40 to 60 hours a week on the radio. The fact that I actually went to school is just, you know, I went to school. But I learned about being able to teach myself things. I learned back then what I'm passionate about. I learned about connecting. And I realized that we're unbounded as people as far as what we can do. If we take away the ability of take the word can't and just drop the TMA can, you can do anything. And so I'm very fortunate to, have been grow, to grow up in an environment where I was allowed to be obsessive about a hobby. But ultimately, it was that passion to communicate that saved my life, that helped change and, and define who I was. And um, early on, one of the things, anyone here friends with anyone who's a ham radio operator? Ah, Patrick. Ah, so I was one. Ah, very, wow. Wow. So, um, there's a brotherhood of, 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 the other thing, but the thing about ham radio is that when you're 12 and a half years old and you're talking to people on the radio, no one wants to talk to you. Because you see, the average person on the radio was much older, and they would basically go online and talk about, they'd complain about their jobs, they'd complain about their wives. And, you know, I wasn't working, I didn't have a girlfriend, I was boring. So there, there were four things that I learned about being 12 and a half trying to connect, which was to listen, to connect, to share, and engage. And, if any of you ever needed a winning, winning social media strategy, it's those four words that if you remember the listen, connect, share, and engage, that's how you win in social media because you actually want to be interesting, you want to connect, you want to listen to what the person has to say and say something which brings on that conversation. And, and for me, the other thing I loved about amateur radio was being able to help out in times of disasters to pass messages along. And then just the idea of bridging. Like I, I watched MASH, and I'm sure you've seen reruns of MASH, and, Radar O'Reilly was not a role model for me, but I love the fact that he was in Korea uh, connecting servicemen overseas with loved ones. And so I enjoyed being in New York, listening for people looking for, to have a phone patch into New York. So people would say from, from Toronto or from Tel Aviv, they wanted to talk to someone in the States, I would actually bridge them on the radio and do a local handoff and make phone, and make phone calls and then use a, the, the, the phone patch to connect it. And it worked. And as long as you didn't do it for business purposes, it was legal, it was fine, it was open. I spent a lot of time playing with phone patches, trying to understand. And back then, again, when you have $5 minute rates, you could understand why people would find ways to bypass it. Lots of entrepreneurial businesses went into trying to bypass that stuff, too. But for me, it was about the, the connection. It was about building those contacts. And as a kid, the one thing which I was fascinated with was uh, when I went to university, I stayed local on Long Island because ultimately I learned, I got very much into coding due to my ham radio hobby, my obsession. Because back in the 70s into the 80s, when there was a Cold War, there was, it was actually a, a sport, if you can believe this, called radio sport, East versus West, where people would turn their radios on on Friday nights and keep them and compete for 48 hours straight 
and talked to as many people as possible around the world. The world was built and dropped into 40 different zones. You had countries, states, provinces in Canada, and it was an optimization model to figure out. So I learned to code, basically, to, um, to log and to compete in, my, in, in amateur radio. And um, so I was, I was running code, and so when I was in high school, I ended up starting three companies. One was a software development company. One was a DJ production company, because you see, as a kid, with not much social life or social skills, the one thing I sometimes may have used my hammer to radio for, and there's, I believe it's an, I'm way past the statute of limitations, so I can admit this. Um, but in the 70s, it was a book by Abby Hoffman called Steal This Book. Now, I don't know if any of you ever read that book or know about Alt.2600 or maybe subscribed to Tap Magazine or may or may have not have read built Red Boxes, Blue Boxes, or know what a Captain Crunch whistle is. But basically, there was a time where you could admit a certain tone and get a long-distance dial tone, just saying. And, and occasionally being bored, I might have taken my amateur radio and put on 40, um, gone on uh, 41 meters instead of 40 meters and then started a shortwave radio station where I engaged my sisters to be the uh, folks listening. So in America, the, for 9X, for the, for, the, for the local phone network, if you call 212-976-9977, you get this horrible tone heard. And if you call 212-976-9979, the tone goes away and the two lines were connected. The, the phone network, the phone uh, engineers use that for testing circuits. That particular loop line went to a, to a phone booth in the, in the, traced to a phone booth in the South Bronx. When I um, started my shortwave radio station, I would use those loop lines to take requests, thinking people would actually tune in to me. And I, my sisters were traumatized growing up because I told them two things. If you ever see a white van, run like hell, but get me first. <laughs> And uh, so, um, to this very day, they still are traumatized by them whenever they see white fans. And so, so as, a, as a shortwave, as a pirate radio station, I only operated on stormy winter nights on Long Island and on federal holidays, figuring that um, if it was a stormy winter night, who's going to come out after me? And if it's a federal holiday, that's holidays, so who cares? So I only had about um, five to ten broadcasts a year. So by the way, anyone want to guess what nefarious industries might have been using loop lines in the 70s? And? 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 Who? We can't hear it. Okay, so it's gambling, prostitution, and drug running. So yes, those three. So when my, when my sister was on the when I was on the air trying to promote, um, so I was W A R G. I was uh, from somewhere on the East Coast. The <laughs> W A R G coming to you live, and I was Ray Haber, and uh, I did it for a long time, and, uh, and and so I would take requests, and I would buy vinyl every time someone wants to play a track that I didn't have. I'd go out and buy records. So what do you do with a record collection? So I ended up, so girls who would not invite me to the Sweet Sixteens would invite me to DJ their parties. And so my first actual business I ever started was a DJ production company, which ironically is still in business today. A friend of mine, now, well, it's his business now, but we started together when we were 15 years old. And my passion for music runs deep. But you see, back in those days before I had my ham radio license, when I was looking for friends, I was so lonely that I would actually adopt the music of the people I was trying to connect with to find something in common with them. It wasn't until I was later in my teenage years that I actually find music that I liked. But I was very much into the connection and very much into trying to find that human bond between people, between things. And that's been sort of my motivating drive my entire life. And then it came around 1980, I went to college. I didn't want to go to school. I had a big fight. My father applied to a university and I went to it and he got in, but it was okay because it was me. But it was basically, I think, his application. Um, but it worked. Um, 
And I do have an accounting degree, although I never practiced accounting, which is really good for anyone who is an accountant. You can appreciate that. I'm gainfully unemployed. But I, uh, in 1980, though, the, the summer going into my, 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 my freshman year in school, I figured out a way within a 30-mile radius uh, of where I lived to get my ham radio to give me dial tone. So I had a mobile phone in 1980 in my car using, using a phone patch. And I was so proud of my achievement that when I was on campus trying to meet girls, I was trying to get them to come into my car to check out my, my phone patch. And <laughs> don't go there. Um, now I'll fast forward to that. But the world that I grew up in, the world that I grew up in, in fact, was about um, all about tech, but all about connecting. And um, after school, I, uh, when I was still in university, my father had a data general mini computer in our house. And I, I basically broke into his computer to learn how to code. Now, my first experiences in coding was actually when I was in fifth grade. We had a we had a teletype machine in my parents' house. We had a 110 board modem, and I would use basically. So I went, I've been on the been dialing into time sharing services since 110 board to 300 board to 1200, then all the way to 9600. What a re revelation! And I, I learned to code because I wanted to code, but I got into the consulting business because these systems engineers would come to my parents' house and see me at the console and realize I actually understood what was going on. So my mom used to draw, so when I was 16 years old, my mom drove me to consulting gigs uh, to basically, I got connected to the uh, systems engineers at Data General, and then I noticed that, that the language had a, needed, didn't have any floating point arithmetic. So I started a software publishing company going into my senior year to actually add floating point arithmetic to Data General Business Basic. And so I didn't want to go to university because I was actually having fun. And so my father insisted I go to college, which I did. And so when I left, I, um, I basically started a company called Spreadsheet Solutions, and I ended up very accidentally becoming an expert in fixed income mathematics and fixed interest mathematics, and that's what I did. And from that, I got involved with real-time market data and ended up working on Wall Street, basically selling to Wall Street, trading buy side, sell side, and got very much involved in all of that. And um, the thing about the ham radio is that it's open. There's a brotherhood that wherever I went to in the world, a ham radio bot, we're instant friends. It's like instant trust. It's like implied trust, sort of like with blockchain. You have implied trust because it's just there. And in a world where you're, you're sometimes told, don't talk to strangers, all I ever did was talk to strangers. All I ever did was, I was so maybe lonely or open that I would talk to anyone that would talk to me, and amateur radio was like the door, the key opener to it. And so, um, I ended up selling my first business, Spreadsheet Solutions, to Canada Fitzgerald Securities in 1993. And I went from working for myself to working for someone else, which for me, you know, didn't work out so well. I don't know if any of you are misfits. I discovered when I was a young kid, I was a misfit. I did not fit in. I didn't fit in. I, I, I understand it's challenging to work in an environment where you don't fit in, but you deal with it because you're so tolerant of pain and torture. Uh, <laughs> It's the inertia, really. But being able to find your place takes a lifetime sometimes. And for me, um, the only reason why I sold my business to Canner was because a friend of mine became chief information officer there. And he saw what I was doing building out my, uh, my business. And he, thought to, he asked me, do I want a real job? And I didn't quite understand what that was. But at the time, to my parents' credit, for anyone who ever worked for me, my father backed me. So whenever I could make payroll, he did. So I had this, because he figured if someone's crazy enough to work for a 22-year-old, they will um, be paid. And, but when I, when I sold my business to Canner, my father was okay about that, but he warned me, but I didn't understand what that meant. 
And then I got a three-year job in a, a, a life lesson in office politics. So I went from having 27 people working for me to having one person working for me to ultimately no, nobody and then one person. And I appreciate all that. But what magically happened to me around that time, this was, so growing up on ham radio though, when I, in 1972, when I was really getting into this communication thing, there was an application which I was really fascinated with called Pong. Has anyone ever here ever played Pong? So if you remember Pong, and I want to go back to it, it's Pong was the first out creation from Atari. It was, yes? Can I, I'm sorry, I'm fascinated by that response. He asked how many people had played Pong? Not many. Not many. I'm interested. Well, I guess I'm a lot older than I thought. Well, <laughs> well but, but, but the thing is, Pong sort of gave us the modern day gaming industry. Pong gave us ultimately what evolved into ARVR. Pong gave us the ability for deep military applications to be used in gamification. Pong gave us a lot. It was a challenge by Norman, uh, by the founder of Atari, to someone else. That's how it actually came into fruition. And it was really an application running on a chipset, connected to a television in black and white, and all it did was play table tennis. And if you think about it, Pong happened to be created in a marketplace that was not disrupting anyone else. Minding its own business, enabled, it opened up the theater in our homes to start to interact with something else other than each other, other than the television itself. It gave us an interactive base. If you look at blockchain and Bitcoin, in, from my perspective, I look at it as Pong. That, that, that basically the chipsets, the blockchain, Bitcoin is the application Pong. Just so happens it came into a marketplace heavily regulated, sometimes misunderstood with intentions, but it was a proof of concept. That was 1972. The internet, with DARPAnet, started in 1969. It took many, many years of research, development, and failure to learn from stuff. You know, most people, most things we depend on in our daily lives wasn't invented. It was someone else's good mistake. Most things we go out to do in our, like when you're an inventor or a creator, sometimes you can see those good mistakes. But other than deep research in science or medical research and stuff, and even medical research, it's the mistakes people make that they stumble upon that give us that aha that this is special. So Pond starts that path, I start my path with communications. And um, in, um, in 1994, I'm working on Wall Street, and I read about uh, some software coming out that lets you communicate on the internet. It was called See You, See Me. Just to, for those who just joined set the base, how many people here use See You, See Me? So for those who don't know what I'm talking about, this is a black and white screen, forget about Netflix, pre-Netflix, Talking about a little square, 120 by 160, black and white, we're getting four, three, four, five, seven frames per second video. And that was wow. So I was, I was actually connected to those folks at Cornell University that were playing with this. Then on that mailing list, I learned about software that you could download that would be available in February 20 of, of 1995 called um, Internet Phone, which when I downloaded it, I was amazed. Because you see, I downloaded this software because I was on the CUC mailing list. And when I, the, on, in I think the February 12, 1995, it came out. And 20% of the people online were using their ham radio call signs as their aliases. And when I realized that it was a new brotherhood, there are these people pretending to be ham radio operators, well, we're ham radio operators, we're pretending to use amateur radio lingo or on the computer. Uh, talking to each other around the world, and it just just happened, and so we were able to, um, 
it was our name, our location, and my call sign. And we actually, I was talking to people as if I was on amateur radio. But we did not need antennas or radio propagation. We didn't need anything but a microphone, dial-up, and a lap and a computer. And it just worked. We had half sound, half duplex sound cards back then, if you could even imagine that. So it was not even full duplex. And I very innocently started a mailing list so that people who were offline could talk to each other and discover each other online. And my background was maybe accounting, maybe I was a hacker. I, I didn't have, I don't have the time to tell you what I really did in fifth grade, but um, I got into a little bit of trouble. But I, I enjoyed the idea of connecting people and connecting dots. And so I created this mailing list. And, and in September 1995, somebody asked a very simple question, is it possible to interconnect a telephone and a computer? It was from a guy in, uh, in, in, uh, in Italy. And I responded yes, because I took out that phone patch that was very embarrassing in 1980 when I was in college. I dusted it off, literally connected it to my computer, and it worked. I got dial tone. And then I got an offline message from a guy in Jakarta, Indonesia, who, uh, for those engineers in the room, back in 1995, there were two uh, chipsets for modems that were very popular. One was Cirrus Logic, one was Rockwell. If you happen to be using a Cirrus Logic chipset modem, this guy wrote to the APIs in the modem, and it actually gave you dial tone. So if you had two, compute, two modems in your computer, one for dial-up access, the other one gave you dial tone. And using the APIs from Vocaltech, the company I used to talk on the internet, we hacked, um, by cross-connecting sound cards and this other stuff, we hacked the ability to get a dial-out phone line. And in, in the next month, I launched something called Free World Dial-Up. It was free, it connected the world, and it ran on dial-up. And this was completely revolutionary. So in 1995, there were 16 million people on the internet. And never in my life did I ever expect to see so much press and media coverage. But when I launched Free World Dial, very innocently, we had no business plan. We had no intentions of having a business. It was myself, a friend in Jakarta, a friend in Tokyo. And we launched this. It went viral around the internet. It was just nuts. Um, by November 1995, on the back page, the on the front page of the, of the Sunday Times in London, was a story about Bill Gates and the road ahead. On the back page was a story about Free World Dial and the threat to the future BT. It's really funny reading, but nobody was laughing. And I had the, one of the biggest fights in my life with my dad over that weekend because he told me I should cash out and take advantage of my presence. And I told my dad one day it will happen, but now is not the time to do that. And, then the, and then, so I had a day job on Wall Street. I was actually working in systems. I was an IT guy. I had the guy. I was responsible for new innovations. We had 1,000 people at Canner, 150 in systems, 149 responsible for keeping things the way they are. The one guy responsible for change was me. I was the internet guy. And, and back in 95, by the way, it was an offense that you can get fired on the spot if you were caught putting an IP-enabled device on the production network during trading hours. You could not do that. Um, I didn't have any friends in systems because I was trying to bring new tech in, and that was a hard part. But, but I had this, this opportunity, though, to at least explore at night. And so I, I launched Free World Dial-Up, money on my own business. On my mailing list in March of 96, everything exploded. Why? Because 300 phone companies went to the Federal Communications Commission. And, and asked for the sale and use of internet telephony software to be banned in America, and the makers to be re regulated as phone companies. And it's like, oh my God. Hmm. So, so there were people on this mailing list, 3,000 people at that point, and I, and I don't know anything about telecom. I, I wasn't professing to have any knowledge about any of this, but I was watching this go by, and people were saying to me, what was I going to do about it? And, and in that moment in time, my standing in Washington was pretty simple. I had none. I'm a ham radio operator. I understand Part 97 of the FCC rules. Well, what am I going to do? And so 
It took 10 days, but it went to the mailing list, and this never happened before in the history of the internet, and never happened in the history of lobbying in Washington before. But I asked people, would they join a coalition? So I, in 1995, anyone could get any kind of domain. So I, cre I had a domain called Vaughn that stood for voice on the net, and video on the net, or whatever you wanted to make it. But I had Vaughn.com, Vaughn.org, and everything else, and I decided, okay, I'll create the voice on the net coalition. And we got 110 people uh, to join in a very short period of time. And we just put out a statement that we're against the act of petition. Now, afterwards, I met people at the FCC who had never seen this ever before in the history of what they were doing. And so, whoa, it turned out the act of petition was stopped. And for nine years, and the, the, the voice on that coalition still exists today. I'm the, the chairman emeritus to that. And um, for nine years, we kept voice over IP um, unregulated. And the argument back then was if it quacks like a duck and looks like a duck, it's probably a duck. I said, no, it was born on the internet. You just don't understand. Just because from your eyes it should be regulated doesn't mean it can be regulated or should be regulated. So we had a, we had a safety spot. What I never imagined was that I would actually become the founder of, of a trade association promoting a technology. And, and along the way, I just didn't want my hobby to go away. I really enjoyed running Free World Dial-Up. I really enjoyed helping people from around the world connect to each other, bypass tariffs, because the way Free World Dial-Up worked was Every city around the world, we had a node. Um, you basically, and I, by the way, it was very non-scalable because I was buying the extra modems for people. So if you sign up on the mailing list saying, I want to run a node for free will dial-up, we had a FedEx office at one, one World Trade, I would send everyone a modem. And when you connected to the mo when you connected up, you allowed for some period of time, whether it's two minutes a day up to whatever time you want, your node to be available for dial-out traffic. And so we had up to 500 nodes running around the world and from many cities and, min and no cities, but I've, over the last 20-something years, I've run into so many of the people who I sent these modems to, because no one really understood there was, the only, I did it from passion. And it turns out when you start businesses from passion and no business models and you're not scalable, you can induct and bring change dramatic change forward. It turned out I got very lucky in America because there was no regulation at the FCC for free services. If people were to charge a fraction of a penny for every call that went out, we would have been shut down. In fact, I would have perhaps not gone to jail, but these people would have been regulated as reselling a utility without a resale license. Lots of fines for that. But for being fucking crazy? No sign for that. No, no fine for that. But, but anyway, what, what happened for me, which I just want to just, just bring this to, to the next step, is doing, doing, the, doing free wall dial-up and showing the world what was possible called bullshit on a lot of hype that was out there too. But I kind of did this independently because I had a day job. But I don't know if any of you have ever been in a work environment in corporate corporate world, wherever you may be in, where you knew you were going to get fired. You just didn't know when. Because we were, uh, I had 17 managers at one point, all of us from systems. We start going out for Friday lunches. Then there were 14 of us. Then there were 12 of us. Then there were seven of us. So we had this ominous feeling that we're not going to make it. Um, which saved our lives ultimately, but, but you know, it was a very dramatic feeling when I showed up at a systems meeting in, um, the, right after the American holiday, thanks, uh, uh, Fourth of July holiday in 96, I show up at a meeting, all hands on meeting, two co-managers running systems, they hand out an org chart, I was the person in the back raising my hand, yes Jeff, I said, there's a typo on the list, on, the, on that org chart, what's wrong? I'm not on it. <laughs> And then one co-manager said to the other co-manager, did you fire him? And the other one said, did you fire him? So that's how I found that I got fired. <laughs> and 
and I had the kind of job where I could last the entire summer and no one would have noticed I wasn't there or I was still on the payroll. But no, I, I spoke up. But that feeling of being fired, I had broadband internet service to my house. So I knew the internet was going to be big. So I, I was paying more for connectivity than my mortgage. But I couldn't figure out how I was going to continue doing my passion because I had no savings. And um, my dad, who was kind enough to me it, during the years of me running my software company, was not there to support me at all. He said, figure it out. And so I, what I figured out is I didn't want to go back to working on Wall Street. I decided to live my, well, I wanted to f do my passion. So I decided to host a conference to bring together people who had a shared common interest to help change the world to help see the future of communications as undefined. And what I ended up doing was doing an event in New York City at the Puck Building in Soho on September 10th and 11th, 1996. But there's a little bit of a trip to it though. I needed $15,000 for a deposit. Um, and uh, no one I went to, whether I went to a venture fund for money, no one said yes to me, nobody. So luckily when I was on Wall Street, I had an Optima card. I actually drew down $15,000 all the credit I had in traveler's checks, back then traveler's checks, I went to the puck building and I gave them, the, gave them the, uh, the, the deposit and to my utter surprise, to my utter surprise, um, 224 people from around the world showed up on those dates. Some of those people started companies that would have multi-billion dollar market caps even within a year. But what I found was a, a soulful, a group of soulful people who believed in a future. They understood disruption. They understood the internet was happening and they could not explain what was actually going to happen because of it, but it happened in a very, very big way. And I was um, very quiet back then. I actually didn't speak at that conference. I was too shy. But I was very happy to connect the dots and to connect with these people and see how lives were starting to, be ch starting to change. And I was the, um, you know, the guy running the, the, the free world dial-up, so I was kind of like this mystical person that I was not, did not know who I was because I had this, it's like my, 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 my prior radio days, I had, yes, hi, it's Ray Hayward coming to you live from somewhere, somewhere on the East Coast and uh, next up is, what was next up? I don't know, it might have been Deep Purple, might have been Led Zeppelin. It was definitely something deep uh, from the UK and it was fun because it was about connecting with those people. But I'm not, when I'm doing something disruptive like doing what I thought Abby Hoffman would do is someone would actually just go set up gateways, I never realized that was the future of voice over IP. But I, very fortunately for me, I ended up doing by accident. And so if any of you have any doubt that you need a license to do something, you don't. The only thing you ever need is blind faith in yourself. When I worked on Wall Street, one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in my life was listening to the people around me. Because I had an idea a long time ago, back in 94, to do HTML-based email. I thought that would be kind of cool. But the people who worked near my cube said it was a stupid idea, so I didn't pursue it. I had this other idea to do online mortgage brokering. Bad idea, I didn't pursue that. But I finally realized I needed new friends because <laughs> I, I, I let other people decide my fate. I let other people decide what I should do. And I had to take ownership of who I was. Which, you know, I spent my entire life not even knowing who I am. But, but finally figuring out that I could do things so that I just can, I don't need to be educated. It's passion, luck, and opportunity. You know, I, I like to think that it's laziness, but, but smart laziness that helps drive innovation. And I, and I think that being unbounded and understand just because you don't have a degree in something doesn't mean you're quali not qualified to do something. Because you could actually do anything you want. And what happened with me, which was just crazy, is this conference business ended up being a smashing success even though I knew nothing about running conferences. So I created my own culture and it just worked. 
And along the way, I started a few companies. Uh, the whole idea of free world dialogue turned out to be, I didn't file any patents for this, unfortunately, but it turned out that many other people did. <laughs> and the, the entire early days of voice over IP were, were entrepreneurs putting computers in different locations around the world and building bridges, bypassing the internet tariffs, and having hot, local hop-on, hop-off uh, email. I was, uh, back in 97, I was actually in Sydney, because Ozymail launched, I was friendly with those guys, and I was on, um, a, a, uh, I was on, I was on a current affair. I remember being in a current affair in Sydney, and it was really funny, because in 24 hours, I was, I was interviewed by, uh, by the, financial, by the uh, uh, financial Review, I was on ABC there, and I was on a Current Affair, which ran in different provinces all over Australia for about two weeks. Got a lot of new nodes up there at that point. But they thought I was competing with, with Ozymail, which I wasn't. I was just trying to show people what you can do. And um, ultimately, I very accidentally created a company called The Minutes Exchange in, 90, in 98. When there were a lot of B2B companies going on, I decided that, should be a, that one day there would be a future for spot markets, and that um, I created a spot market with voice over IP. But in the year 2000, I got so jealous of all these people with these exits, all these dot-com companies. I was one of the original dot-coms, Pulver.com. I wasn't going public. I wasn't doing anything. So I decided that this minutes exchange should go be real. So I managed to actually meet somebody who knew somebody that started Daytech Online and started the Island DCN, companies which maybe you're familiar with. And I was introduced to Jeff Citron. And um, it took about six months. But I hired him, which was a very interesting hire. And um, I'll just leave it at that. Um, but he, I shared the idea about being a minutes exchange. And I shared with him the next startup I wanted to do was a broadband phone company. And um, after I incubated them in my office for eight months, they moved out to Edison, New Jersey. So I figured Jersey's where you should have telecom. Long Island's good for aerospace. And uh, he told me that they decided to change the name of the company from the minutes exchanged to Vonage, where Vonage was the, the age of voice on the net. So I'm the Von of Vonage. And I very accidentally started that company. And um, that's actually publicly traded and doing pretty okay now. But it was a very surreal moment of just seeing that become real. And um, for me, the, so that happened and I had a good exit with my conference business, but 2003 was a strange time for me because you see, I sold my business on, on, on September 10th, 2001, because I, I don't know if any of you get premonitions. I don't know if any of you ever act on premonitions or even publicly would admit that you get premonitions, but I do. And in the year 2000, at the end of the 2000, I was in Florida on a family holiday, and a, and a competitor calls my phone from a number I didn't even, understand, didn't even recognize. It's rare for me to answer my phone from a cell number I don't know. But someone asked me what my exit strategy was. I had to confess, what's an exit strategy? <laughs> Because at that moment in time, I actually started a record label, I had a production company, I was producing concerts, I was having conferences, I was having the best time of my life. I, had run, I was running a bunch of businesses in parallel, and it was fun. So I said to myself, why should I sell my business? But I took that as a sign from God that I should sell a business. So I spent 2001, which was my best year ever, through June, looking for a buyer. Finally, the buyer was in LA. The deal closed, literally closed on September 10th. Then 9-11 happened, so I went from total elation to being in Atlanta on 9-11, and um, what the fuck? And then I realized how grateful I was to be alive because 700 people died at the company I worked for. And I had the kind of job in systems where I very much could have died. In fact, my mother and my sister got a phone call that I died. They only told me this three years ago. And my sister was trying to explain to the person at Canada that no, I was very much alive, I was in Atlanta, and they, and they thought my sister was in shock. 
Um, but I really feel bad because one person, Bill Gardner, who I hired, who I, when I did Vonage, I, I took a lot of people out of Canner to do that, he stayed. So I'm forever responsible for him. But I, um, then September 12th was my birthday. So it was like three crazy days in my life. And, um, but I was so grateful to be alive and so grateful to be in that moment. And um, for me, when I looked toward the future, uh, so we waited for the, the, you know, back then, back in 2001, that was post-dot-com crash, sort of, we had a telecom crash, we had all this other stuff. And for 17 months, I was absolutely depressed and miserable because I sold my business, the thing I loved. But luckily, 17 months later, two weeks before the company I sold my business to went bankrupt, I bought my business back. And I was able to do those conferences for another few years and build it up from a zero EBITDA to about 7 million EBITDA over three years. So I was kind of happy about that. But in 2003, I had another premonition that the phone companies would wake up and realize how destructive broadband would be to their future. And I was responsible to save the future. And I actually testified this. It's kind of weird to tell people that you're from the future trying to save the past mistakes, but I did. And I, and I contacted the lawyers who I hired for the Von Coalition. I said, hey guys, can we be proactive this time? Can we go actually go after the, the phone companies and look for clarity? I said, sure. So it took five weeks to write a brief. And um, I, what I asked for was regulatory clarity that voice communication starts on the broadband internet should not be regulated as telecom. Pretty simple to ask. And uh, sure enough, um, we filed this, it took five weeks. The, uh, the attorney called me up that day and said, congratulations, we're filed. I said, when does the fight start? He says, what fight? And then they waited they wait until then to say, Jeff, if you hear Martian signals in your ears, you could file a petition at the FCC, but I guarantee you they probably will not put it out for public comment, but you could do whatever you want. I said, oh no. But then it's like, be careful what you wish for. Because 10 days later, the FCC put my, 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 my petition out for public comment. And for those of you who have not been through a petitioning cycle, it's, I had 30 days of piss on Jeff Pulver month. Uh, my integrity as a human being was attacked worldwide. The integrity of the merits of the petition were attacked. Everybody was against it, basically. And for why? But I, I had a chance to re respond back. But then in May of 2003, two organizations, which I don't really, um, I was in shock what to do. The Department of Justice and the FBI went after me. You see, they said that the free world dial petition, no, it's just a cover for Al-Qaeda. You are trying to block broken wiretaps. You cannot allow, we cannot allow this to happen. Like the NSA, hello? But um, they, but they didn't talk about the NSA back then. So, but it turned out in 2003, the US government reacquired certain property from MCI. And the craziest meeting of my life happened when I had um, 10 people from my office show up at a an unmarked building in downtown Washington, which was a former MCI building. You go to the second floor of this building, and it's a computer crimes division. First time in my life, I'm thinking I'm on the set of Law and Order. And I go in this building, I sit down, three people from the government are there, but only two people introduce themselves, which was really freaking nuts. And the third person, who not, never was identified, said, hi, we're not here to discuss the merits of your petition, our comments are of public record, but do you mind uh, answering a few questions? I was like, okay, and then our CTO was there, and I felt terrible for this guy. Ed Guy, actually, Ed Guy was his name, so I felt terrible for this guy. I meant Ed, and uh, he's sitting there, sweating bullets. I think after about 20 minutes, he must have shed about a pound, maybe uh, he shed, um, I don't know, two pounds of water weight, just totally there. So I jumped up. I said, guys, listen, if if you think free will dial will help you get Al Qaeda, it's yours. Take it, host it, whatever you want. If you want to put hooks in there, it's yours, whatever you want. I'm looking at each other, what the fuck? And I'm like, like they did not expect me to donate this asset to, to the government. I should tell you, by the way, after 9-11, 
whatever meager lots I had, I gave them all to the FCC. I gave them all to the government to help track down the bad guys. And so I was there because I wanted them to understand I was not a bad guy. I was a strange guy, but not a bad guy. And I, and I was there. So anyway, the meeting ended. And um, we, I only had one hug, but I got one hug from the government. And I, I thought it was okay. And then the next day was like a surreal day because I went to the White House. I was at the West Wing of the White House. President Bush had a telecom czar, uh, Richard somebody. And by the way, after this whole thing with the FBI and DOJ, we were so burnt out that we had our PA pitch the guy from the White House. Because like, it's like, we've been doing this forever. So this woman, really nice, smart girl, she pitched this guy from the White House, and he listened to all our things and said, yes, President Bush is behind Free World Island, it would be good for broadband in America, we're looking at each other. And I should mention that where we were in the West Wing was he had glass windows. I mean, his entire, entire wall, at least the room we were in, it was all glass. And, um, and the elevator we came up was like just a two-story elevator, but it was like very, very close by. And so we're like, like, after the day before, it's like, we're done, this is crazy. So he yesed us, and we're very happy we're leaving. And then as he saw the doors to the elevator close on our party, he opened his doors and said, thank you for not asking for subsidies. I'm saying, fuck, we could have gotten subsidies from the government. What idiots are we? What idiots are we? And so we're there. And then anyway, nine months later, nine months later, um, at the February 12th FCC um, hearing, as it was in 2004, the son of Colin Powell, Michael Powell, issued something called the Pulver Order. Now, I, am, I became a subject now in Washington, for real. And it's, this is the Pulver Order is the reason why Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, and Google are not regulated as telecom providers, and why everyone um, is able to use apps on those, plat on those platforms for free. And it turns out that the Pulver Order is honored in over 100 countries around the world. And for many people, voice is not voice, is voice. And that we were able to create a clarity and a safe haven because we asked for it. If we didn't stand up and make that work, um, it went up. So it took someone to stand up and to do stuff. And you know, my contributions to, to, to creating that environment came more from helping to bring people together. Because you see, with voice over IP, it's a very complicated protocol. It was, born, it was invented in 1980 in the Israeli Defense Forces. It took until the early 90s for it to be commercialized. But the one thing I used to do at my conferences was help to homogenize protocols. People from large companies with big egos came, showed up, and everybody was working on trying to make it work right. But imagine if you had 100 phone networks where each phone network could not talk to each phone network. That's actually what happened in America originally. When we had no interoperability. But we didn't have operability. And so what I was able to do behind the scenes was to find a way to find common ground when it was possible to, um, to enable the engineers to talk to each other and to find ways to align our business interests together. Even if we were competing, we needed to have coopetition in order to have competition. We needed to have an open mind to have a marketplace to, to grow. And so one of the things I was able to do through the Vaughn conferences was I learned very early on that if I have um, open bar for seven hours for an all-night party, hire a band that's playing on the radio, and basically learn to take having fun seriously, everything else just magically just works out. And so I did that. And um, it was really a, a very special moment. But I, I'll tell you, back in 2002, right before I did the pulver order, I, um, I got on the cases of everyone in the industry. Because you see, it took from, let's say, 96 to 2002 for this stuff to be taken seriously. 
But all these major vendors, I mean, I remember meeting in 1997 the CTO of AT&T who says, we don't play with game, we don't play with toys. We're never going to employ voice over IP because it's just a toy, it doesn't work. Then two years later, it's like, they're at my conference giving a keynote. It's like, okay, you got it. And uh, the thing was, for me, is I was so fucking annoyed with this industry. You see, unlike other industries, telecom folks, they do replication, not innovation. Imagine being a doctor. <laughs> You know, in, 19, in, in, in 2003, they were using technology from the 60s. In fact, the codex we use for the voice compression comes back to the 1930s. I helped introduce HD voice in America, but that didn't happen until after 2010. But in 2002, I was on the cases of everybody in the industry running a phone network, deploying billions of dollars of hardware, because all they were doing was replacing one piece of equipment with another and not innovating anything. So I called that, that, that process black and white minutes. I, call, I said, I've called everyone out and I said, what you should be doing is purple minutes. You should be using this technology to create things never before practical or possible. Otherwise, you're just wasting time. And it took a long time for the industry to go purple, but they did. And today, a lot of the services you're seeing on the internet where you're interactive, those are representations of things we could never do before. People tried and failed, but now we have a platform that enables us to do all that. And so, um, and it was kind of weird that Purple Minutes is referenced on Wikipedia, but then my page was taken down. But the concept is there about being purple, at least being different, about owning the responsibility of trying to be, be both leveraging what was never before practical or possible in the present. And so it's like, why am I here today? So I shared with you this story for a reason, besides the fact that I enjoyed telling it, and I really left a lot of the good stuff out. But I, I just wanted to create a foundation that I... I've experienced life in a different way than others. I've appreciated how technology can change things. I've also seen ways that technologies can avoid the, that people who do not engage make mistakes which they can't go back in time. But we're living in a moment in time right now that's perhaps more glorious than we ever had. For those of you who have creative minds and, and want to be opportunistic, much bigger than the dot-com days. I mean, I saw friends of mine go bankrupt. I saw the, the first internet millionaires and billionaires happen. There's no doubt in my mind that there's be someone maybe in this room waking up real soon or maybe after the winter's over and say that, you know, they're the first, you know, um, trillionaires. Great, whatever. What you're going to do with a trillion dollars, I have no idea. But it's possible it can happen. But it will not happen. It will not happen unless we collectively work together to affect positive change, to help build an industry amongst you. So we're sitting in this room. The reason, why I, I, the reason I said yes to coming here is I actually have a vested interest in trying to positively disrupt another marketplace. Um, and and I, I do believe that as much as no one in this conference is going to talk about TCPIP, I know a few people here have been around, and we're not going to talk about our problems with UUCP either and getting our gateways up to interconnect on email in the 80s or in the 90s with CompuServe. We're not going to go there. We're not going to talk about Oasis or Gopher. But it was in 1991 that, um, that HTTP came out. And then that was HTTP 1.0. Very shortly thereafter, HTTP 1.1 came out, but it took several years for it to actually be as widespread adopted as 1.0 was. That was a worldwide web. Where we're sitting now today in this era of blockchain, you know, I, and those of you who are on the computer who maybe came onto the internet at a certain time, you may remember having to load TCP IP drivers. You know, back in corporate America, we had NetBuoy, NetBIOS, TCP IP was not a winner, but it became a winner for those who wanted to build on the internet. The thing about all the hacking you've seen that continues to be seen is because TCP IP was built on trust. 
um, it was built on trust. The, the actual core protocols are open. And so um, it's trust-based systems in a world that doesn't have a lot of trust. And, and, what you're, and then you have applications on top of that, but what, what the internet did give, give us, basically, is we went from 16 million people in 1995 to 3 billion plus now. So I will tell you that in 1995, voice over IP was the most overhyped, misunderstood technology in the history of mankind. I'll tell you in 2018, blockchain and Bitcoin are the most overhyped, misunderstood technologies in the history of mankind. Mostly because the echo chamber has gotten much bigger. But the opportunities have never been bigger either. And what we have the challenge to do is to figure out how to work together, how to affect positive change to make the practical systems we are disrupting to be um, more effective, more efficient. Because in, in the world of finance, it's going to be 1966 meets 2019 real soon. Because from a practical reality perspective, being able to trade and clear settlement to clear trades, together with the opportunity to enable trading, we can do some of it, but we don't have the practical realities for all of it. So when I teamed up with Stephen and partnered with Stephen uh, Nareyoff, who um, helped make Ethereum what it is and helped define the modern day ICO, um, I realized there was a lot of darkness in crypto. In fact, I never say crypto, I always say blockchain. Because I, I really believe that as much as we talk about TCPIP, I do anyway, as being a foundation protocol that everything else is run on top of, in the near future, no one's going to be talking about blockchain. Sorry. It's going the way of the, of the chipsets. It's going to go into chips. It's going to the operating systems. We're going to be able to build applications through and through where, where you're going to be able to have integrity and trust in everything, trustless, if you will. You know, at the same time, by the way, I just want to give you a little timeline. Time, time you know, in 1972, Pond was a great innovation. We did not, not quite understand what was going on with it, but it was the foreshadowing of a huge industry. I believe the launch of Bitcoin is a foreshadowing of a huge industry. And, and if you think the only opportunity is in finance, you're fucking crazy. I, I believe that we're going to have a triumvirate of multiple ways and multiple sectors to figure this out, not just finance. Although it could be a four quadrillion dollar opportunity in finance, but the advent of blockchain businesses will go across all market sectors, all market sectors. And it's not a US phenomenon, it's not a New Zealand phenomenon, it's a worldwide phenomenon. But it does represent the next phenomenal growth opportunity, which we're now living in, which we're all grateful, I am anyway, to be in that marketplace. But what I did in, in March of this year is I created a trade association proactively, looking to promote best practices. Very simply put, I saw what went down with telecom. I saw that voice over IP was trying to be boxed. Because when people don't understand things, they put boxes around it to try to like, like they no one could understand me, so like all these adjectives describe me, but I'm still who I am. I still own my space. And, and people are described with words, companies are described with words, but it doesn't always reflect what it is. As an enabling technology, blockchain is not, I'll put it differently, the, the Securities and Exchange Commission was not born on the internet. It just wasn't. You know, I mean, I had to deal with the Communications Act of 34. You know, in, in, in finance, you're dealing with, you're dealing with 33, 34, and 40. The Howey test is what, the 1940s? I mean, come on. It's a great story to hear about why it happened, but it doesn't necessarily apply in today's modern age. But, but people in, in telecom, they replicate, they don't innovate. When I was sitting on the board of a source switch vendor in 1999, I, I lost my board seat because I got so frustrated because I said, if this was medicine and you, you studied in, in school in the 1960s and you didn't change your methods by the 1990s, you're killing people. You're killing people. The thing is, in telecom, innovation comes very slowly. 
Finance also comes very slowly until it happens and smacks you in the face. And so we have an opportunity today to actually be that change. We have the opportunity today to actually affect positive change. So in, in, in March of this year, with the help of, uh, of Patrick and Fran and a few others, um, and Bexaurus, and uh, we, we, I created at the time called the Securities Token Association, the SDA, with the idea of bringing people from around the world together to promote best practices. Because what I was seeing in Miami, at BTC Miami, was crazy. Besides all the federal people there, from government who I ran into very innocently, I saw people breaking the law. So I decided to create an association that basically stood up for the law. That uh, I, One of my early projects on the internet was Exeter Online. I provided a way for people who wanted to see uh, people who filed information to actually get it out and extract it out. And um, so I thought, wouldn't it be cool to have an association that says, you know what, best practices include supporting AML KYC, complete transparency. So that means that if you have financials, share them. That if you have bank statements, share them. If you um, agree, and also to agree to no money, to basically no front running and no insider trading. Just file for it, damn it. I mean, because for me, an ICO is not about a coin, it's about the crowd. You see, if you look at the etymology of how ICOs happen, it's on the heels of Kickstarter and Indiegogo. So for me, an ICO is, 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 is going to the crowd, going to your community, which you only could have had because of the internet, and then, and then in the, in raising funds through that. So why not be open to sharing with your crowd how you're doing? Have complete transparency. When I, when I met with a former SEC chairman, when I met, asked him to join the STA, he asked me, what would I do about Tether? Because he says, you don't want to necessarily be a shaming organization, but he says, make it possible for people to share their financials. And then people could draw their own conclusions. So, so I started down that path, and we, at the time when Bitcoin was $10,000 and uh, Ethereum was $1,000, I put together an 18-month budget to, to go around the world, to be a lobbying organization in Washington, to be understood, but really to help promote the goodwill of, 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 of what we do. Um, and then, um, but then by May I realized I made a tragic error. Friends of mine that had done ICOs did not want to be stigmatized with the Security Token Association because they don't want to be regulated as a security. It's like, fine. So I changed the name of the organization from the Security Token Association to the Blockchain Token Association. We're the rainbow coalition for all tokens. You know, if you're born a security, you associate a utility, it's fine by us. If you're born as a purple security, it's fine by us. We're here to promote you, to promote your goodwill, and really to figure out how to make this stuff work. And I, I'm a fan of what Fran is doing with T0, creating a protocol, trying to solve a business issue of operability and interoperability for, for basically for the issuance of tokens, and ultimately the seamless trading of tokens. And there, it's no doubt there will be many ATSs around the world that spring up. I keep on running into people that are running exchanges. But we should take advantage of this moment in time to work together to put aside our differences, because we will be competitive, but first we have to build a market. We have to have co-opetition, then competition. But know your competitors. Let's work together to build it up. What I am throwing my hat on the ring to do is to help facilitate this. Um, there's a lot of meetings that have to take place, both on the business side and the technical side, to work out the issues, because there are business challenges with everybody, because you see the market a little differently. And then to implement the protocol takes engineering work. And, um, I am in, I'm all in to help facilitate that. I'm also all in to make sure that we're not necessarily misunderstood. I, in the past three weeks, I've been to two meetings in the United States. Once I, one weekend I spent with the Department of Justice, the SEC, FinCEN, which is a treasury, and uh, FINRA, together with international regulators from, from uh, 
Asia and Europe. And last week I was at the Library of Congress um, with a senator, with a congressman who wants to basically carve out utility tokens and make them unregulated. And what I can tell you is that the biggest challenge we as an industry of create and, and create security tokens are all about is branding. So I look at security. I look at the purple tokens we create, the ones that let us look into someone, a client's company, and to take something from the top line and figure out ways to incentivize their their ecosystem to be investors, as a smart security, as a programmable security. That's inherently different than anything you've ever seen before. And yes, I don't mind it being regulated. I also appreciate why a utility token can just work. And why we should actually, so, so this congressman was suggesting that we, well actually the congressman, not the congressman, the conversation was talking about how we, the Howie rules should not apply. But if I'm, if I'm up on stage hawking, buying the Jeff coin, it's only a dollar today, but I promise you it will be $100 by a week from tomorrow, yes, I'm selling a security. But if I tell you about the Jeff coin because it's helping to drive the Jeff ecosystem, and you want to buy it, buy it, it's different. So we have an opportunity. So the, the big problem with right now with the, regula the regulators around the world, and I speak of the people I met, is the, D the, the uh, SEC from Valerie's mouth said, in no uncertain terms, that if you have a utility token deal gone bad, it's a security. That's it. It's a security. Now, that's great. But what about a private placement where I worked with a client on doing a Reg A plus filing or doing a, a Reg D, Reg S filing to actually intentionally create a security? Oh, that's a security too. So I believe about life. Life is, for me, it's all about um, energy, vibration, and frequency. That if you understand where that is for you and you understand your purpose and intention, you can figure out where you are in the universe. But I'm really confused where I am in the universe today about the classification of securities because from a regulator's perspective, they're using the same word, and it doesn't make any sense to me. My ex-wife was a was had diabetes. She had a she was but in, she was a type one diabetic, meaning insulin dependent. But if you didn't get insulin, she died. After going to a lot of diabetes charity events, I could tell you about type two diabetes, where your body makes insulin, and if you change your diet most of the time, you actually are fine. Two different diseases branded under the same terminology. I challenge you to help figure out how to differentiate security tokens or smart tokens or programmable securities as different than utility token deals to gone bad. Because there's a lot of marketing challenges we're gonna to have to understand how to deal with that. We also should take advantage of the fact that everyone who came here who traveled, whether you traveled five kilometers, three kilometers, or you traveled from around the world, you're here right now. So one of the nice things I enjoy about conferences is not only hearing the speakers, but it's those side conversations you have that just happen, the spontaneous opportunity to have hallway conversations, because that creates business linkages. And as an industry, I implore you, if you can, to find the time to figure out how to contribute to maybe it's the work of the Blockchain Token Association, at least contribute to what Fran is doing, and help us figure out how we're going to build trading systems of the future on common protocols. How to figure out, we can have different business rules, but common protocols so we can communicate, because while well, friends of mine are dealing with, or dealing with you know, interchains, as I told people in Voice Over IP, operability before interoperability. We have to get it fucking working. And it's a lot of work. And it's a lot, a lot of work to understand what we don't have. Because in many ways, the emperors around us, we're buck naked. We talk a good game, but we don't have the ability yet to deliver on the vision because we haven't had that chance yet. We need now as the opportunity to actually make that happen. And it can happen, but it's up to you. 
I'm happy to facilitate some conversations. I am more than happy to help promote the goodwill of what we represent, be the good guys. Uh, and I am always looking for members for the BTA because it's, it helps create common ground to where we all at least align on building an industry together. But I, I do believe that nothing is impossible. Because if anyone would have told me that it's impossible to go to the FCC and, and in a year's time get a law to come out, I never would have started. But ignorance to me is a bliss. Because if you don't know you can't do something, anything can happen. When we were doing Vonage, and we were trying to hire, we had raised a ton of money, and we were trying to hire the best engineers in the world to make voice over IP happen on broadband, every smart engineer said we can't do it, not possible. We didn't hire them. We ended up hiring college students who didn't know they couldn't do it. And it just worked. I think the same thing here works here today, that to the extent that you have a vested interest, whether you're advisory, whether you're launching ICOs, whether you're helping to manage them or manage the expectations, now is the time as an industry to get together and figure out what we need and don't need and just work on making it all happen. So, Fran, thank you for convening us. Thank you all for listening to me. I appreciate your, your attention. Um, my, I'm going to be around here the whole time, uh, and I'm grateful to be here. And, if the star, if um, the, re, the Milky Way, which was behind me, I, I had a life lesson a few times already, where I've learned to enjoy every moment. And so my my, my downtime is spent uh, looking into the universe and chasing the Milky Way wherever I go. So I'm very grateful to be in a place where we actually have dark skies, where you can actually look up and see the center of the universe and understand that we maybe we're all made of cosmic dust, and sometimes that relativeness hits us in different ways. But anyway, thank you, Fran. Thank you all for listening, and I'm grateful to be here. Today. For extra material and any links mentioned in this podcast, please visit naomibrockwell.com. If you'd like to watch the video version, please visit Naomi Brockwell TV on YouTube, BitChute or DTube. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Bitcoin, Blockchain and the Technologies of Our Future.